So immediately, as soon as Jesus came up out of those baptismal waters, immediately, he began to provide proof, evidence of his endless power and authority. So Jesus was there and he was baptized by his relative, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. And as soon as he comes up out of there, he goes and picks a fight with the devil, led by the Spirit out into the wilderness there, proving that he doesn't, in fact, have authority over all heaven and over all of earth and that he would not lose one single battle with the enemy. He had come, in fact, to destroy the works of the enemy. He had proven that he had come to set captives free and shown that he had the ability to do that. We saw that as he's there in a synagogue preaching on the Sabbath, as was his pattern. He's there preaching in the synagogue, and a man filled with an unclean spirit comes and is just revolted at this gospel message that he's hearing. And he cries out against Jesus, and Jesus, just with a word, casts the, cast the demon from the man, frees the man from this demonic oppression, just leaving everyone in, to stand in awe and in wonder. What kind of power is this? What kind of man is this? And then on that very same day, going to the house of Peter and Andrew, where Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She was sick with a high fever, an infection of some sort. So reaching out his hand with a word, he raises her up, completely and totally healing her, immediately, in that moment, completely and totally healing her of that fever. So much so that she immediately went about serving him and the others, the others that were there. And word travels fast in Israel. And so... There in the area of Capernaum, people came from all over. They brought their sick. They brought those that were oppressed by demons. And Jesus healed them all. He didn't worry about their pedigree. He didn't worry about their lineage. He didn't even ask if they had faith. That wasn't the question. This was about Jesus and Jesus proving that he had authority to do all things. And so he healed them. And he healed them all. So much so that you couldn't even get in the house. There were just people all over the place. And then the next morning, he went out to be alone with his father. Because what Jesus needed in his humanity was time with the father. He needed to be there with his father. He needed strength from his father and encouragement from his father. He needed to know his father as well. And so he, he went alone there into the wilderness to meet with the father. And as his followers woke up the next morning and found him gone, they were panicked. You can hear the panic in their voice as they come and they find him there. And they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing here, Jesus? We must capitalize on this popularity, but Jesus hadn't come to win the popular vote. He hadn't come to ask for a consensus. Jesus had come to preach the gospel of his Father, the gospel of God, the gospel of redemption, the gospel that is himself. Jesus came to proclaim that he was the Son of God and that he was here to free men, that those who had placed their trust in him, those who would repent of their sins, they would find themselves free and marching towards eternal life. And so he didn't stay in that place. He moved from town to town there, preaching that gospel. And we don't know exactly what town he was in, but somewhere along the way he came into contact with, with a leper, a man with a leprous disease. And despite the fact that this man was an outcast, despite the fact that people from all over had rejected this man, no one would even reach out their hand and touch him, that he had to walk up and down the streets declaring himself unclean, unable to even go into the cities. Jesus didn't just heal this man with a word, but he reached out his hand and he touched him. He met this man right where he is in his point of need, and he changed this man forever. Cleansed him. Cleansed him of this disease. And this man could then go back into the cities. But it was Jesus that was now left to the desolate places. He couldn't go into towns any longer, because any town that he entered was sure to be overrun by people. Any town that he entered, he was sure to encounter the crowds. Crowds that wanted to see more of this healing. They wanted to be amazed. They wanted to be impressed. So Jesus was there in these 
in these places, in these desolate places, continuing to preach this gospel. And so that's where we return this morning. So I would encourage you there in your home, stand to your feet, please. As we read together, we finally made it to the second chapter. You thought that would never happen. We made it to the second chapter of Mark's gospel. When he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, that is Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All God's people said, Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together today. Father God, what we need now is the same thing we have needed at every time, at every point throughout history. We need you. Father God, you have chosen to reveal yourself in your word. So Father, we come to you this morning not to be entertained, not to be amazed, not to be told how good and how special and how pretty we are. We come here today to interact with you, the living God, to hear your word and to glorify you here in your presence. So be glorified now. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So some time had passed. Where we left Jesus last week, he was there in the desolate places, in the lonely places. He couldn't come into a town because the crowds were too great. But apparently the heat had lifted. And so he had returned there to his hometown. And Matthew 9 tells us that, that he had come across the Sea of Galilee. He had gotten back in a boat and he had come across the Sea of Galilee. And he had returned there to Capernaum. Now, we need to remember that Jesus was from Nazareth. That Nazareth was his home. And he had gone there and he had preached the gospel there in Nazareth. But he hadn't received a warm welcome. In fact, the people so detested what it was that Jesus preached, that they took him out to a cliff and attempted to throw him off to his death. And so what we find is for the first half of Jesus' earthly ministry, for 18 months, he makes his home there in Capernaum. And so when we read here that he had returned home, we can assume that he was back there in Peter's home. Verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So here we go again with these crowds. These crowds were there, so many crowds that... So many people there that you, you couldn't even find a spot at the door. Anywhere that Jesus went, these crowds, they were sure to follow. And this was going to be the case throughout Jesus' ministry. People had heard what he had done. And so everywhere he went, these crowds were going to follow. We read in Mark 7, we're going to get to that in a few months, but we read in Mark 7 that there was a time when Jesus came to Sidon and he tried to just slip in under the radar, but he couldn't do that. That as soon as he did that, the crowds were great. He couldn't be hidden. You see, Jesus looked just like every other man. He wasn't glowing. 
He didn't fly or float everywhere that he went. There weren't some visible, wasn't some visible parade of angels flashing their swords and walking around with him. Jesus looked like any other man, and yet people, they had heard about this Jesus, and they heard that he was doing things that they had not seen, and he was preaching things that they had not heard. And so everywhere he went, these crowds were sure to follow. Now these crowds, they, they almost serve as, a, as an extra character in all of these stories. What we'll find is, we'll find Jesus, we'll find his disciples, we'll find someone that needs some help, we'll find the Pharisees and religious leaders that oppose them, and then we'll find this nebulous group called the crowd. Now Jesus wasn't impressed by the crowd, unlike, common day, unlike current day preachers, unlike politicians, unlike his own disciples. Jesus wasn't out to build a crowd. He didn't measure the success of his ministry by the size of the crowd. As a matter of fact, the crowd more often than not served as a hindrance. It served as a hindrance to Jesus' ability to move about freely, and it served as a hindrance to people that wanted to get to Jesus. So Jesus wasn't impressed by these crowds that came. The crowds were there for the most part. Now, certainly within the crowd, there were people that were in fact saved. There were people that would come in the crowd. They would come to believe in Jesus Christ. They would come to believe in the gospel he preached. They would repent and be saved. But on the whole, the crowd was there because they wanted to be entertained. They wanted to see some tricks. When it came to the matters of spirit, these people were uninterested at best and in direct opposition at worst. And so when, when we see these crowds here, this wasn't this wasn't evidence of some faith on behalf of these people that they were close to Jesus. They were coming for a show, many of them. And the text goes on. And he was preaching the word to them. See, Jesus doesn't allow himself to get discouraged by the fact that the crowd wasn't interested. He doesn't allow himself to get discouraged by the fact that so many that were there would never be saved, would never come to repentance, would never come to faith. He didn't allow that to distract him because he knew that there were some that would. There were some within that crowd that would, in fact, be saved. And so Jesus did the thing that he came to do. He continued to faithfully preach the gospel. It's a word of encouragement to us preachers. As we preach the word of Christ and we, and we call others to repentance and we call them back to faith and we look out to just the mass of humanity that has no interest in the spiritual things. They just cry out from the crowd, we'll do more tricks. We'll entertain us. It's an encouragement that Jesus Christ continues to preach that gospel. That we're called to preach that very same gospel, knowing that God will choose to save some. And in verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. We meet a new person, a paralytic man, and, and just like the leper that we met last week, to have, this, to have this paralysis, to have this inability to move around, this would have been more than just a physical condition. This would have had very deep ramifications for every bit of this guy's life. They didn't have the social services in place. There wasn't all the opportunities for charity there in the life of this man. So he would have been destined for a life of begging. He would have been destined for a life of possibly laying by the roadside and begging. And that would have been compounded by the fact that many within this day and age, they would have viewed this man's paralysis as a direct punishment for some specific sin in his life. Many people would have walked right by him, offering him no charity at all because they would have believed that he must be evil. For your legs to not work like this, surely you must be evil. But we see that this man does have some friends, at least four friends, that are willing to carry him on his bed. Now at that time, the bed that, that Jesus was referring to would have been more like a, more like a nap mat or a rollout. Something that, this, something that was just offered a little bit of cushion off the ground, but allowed people to not sleep in the dirt. And so we can picture here as this guy's four friends, they each pick up a corner. Let's say he's a 180-pound man, each man carrying about 45 pounds of dead weight as they carry this they carry this friend. Now the people never speak. The four men, the leper, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, the paralyzed man, that's what I'm looking for. They never speak. 
And yet we know what their intention was. Luke tells us that they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. These men clearly knew who Jesus was. They clearly knew that he had the power to heal. They had clearly heard stories about who he was. And so they had this desire to come and bring him before Jesus. Verse 4. And when they could, got, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. There's the crowd again doing what the crowd does. These people, they could have made a path. They could have separated. Some people could have exited the house because they saw that this man needed help, but they wouldn't do that. They were too interested in what they were seeing with their own eyes. And so they restricted this man's access to Jesus. And so the friends, they go up on the roof. Now, houses were pretty simple back then. There would have been a downstairs with uh, just a couple of small rooms, maybe a bedroom, maybe a kitchen. And then many houses were two stories. And on the second story of this house, there would have been a big, a big wide open room, a gathering room where people would have gathered for something like this. And then up on top of their roofs, their roofs were flat. There would have been some beams, some wooden beams that ran across the length of the roof. And then there would have been some mud and some thatch that would have offered cover from rain and from sun. And so these guys, they go up there on this roof. And it wasn't uncommon for people to be on a roof at that time. There was no air, there was no air conditioning. There was no ceiling fans. And so it got hot. It would have gotten muggy. And so this would have been a place where people would have gone to get some fresh air. A place where people would have gone to hang out or to pray. We saw that in the life of Peter as he was up there. And the Lord reveals to him that he has, not, that he has made things clean. That this food that was previously off, out of bounds, uh, off limits to him, was now available to him. And so... It would have been a weird thing for these men to climb a ladder or an external staircase to go up on top of the roof. But once they get up to the roof, that doesn't do them a lot of good. Number one, because their friend is heavy. It's hard work to get their friend up there. But then even as they get up there on the roof, Jesus is inside. And now they're outside. So evidently they either scoped it out and they figured out about where Jesus is. Or maybe they poked some little holes down in the roof. But they've, they've determined that this is where Jesus is. And so they start tearing off the roof. Some translators understand this to say they unroofed the roof. This wasn't a minor thing. They were tearing out the mud and the thatch and the, maybe some tiles that were up there. And they were making a hole so that they could determine where Jesus was and they could then begin to lower their friend right down there. This would have been loud. This would have been noisy. And Jesus is there and he's preaching the gospel. I've confessed to you guys on many occasions how easily I get distracted when I'm here and I'm trying to preach. A cell phone goes off, an amber alert, somebody just gets up to go to the bathroom and it, just, and it distracts me. It breaks my rhythm. And so I have no option but to just kind of stand here and let it pass. I do that for my sake. I do that for your sake. Because I know that if I'm not able to concentrate on my own words, you probably have no, no chance at all. And so you can just imagine, though, what would happen if I looked up and somebody's busting through the sheetrock. I'm here trying to preach to you the gospel of eternal life, and somebody's busting through and the sheetrock is falling. I would have had no chance, no chance to continue on with what I was doing. Who does something like this? Who does something like this? Who's inconsiderate like this? They'll start tearing a hole in the ceiling. Well, men with a singular purpose. Men who didn't care about what was socially acceptable. Men who didn't care about how they looked. Men who didn't care about looking foolish. Men who didn't care about the dirty looks from all the other people there. Men that were desperate to get their friend to Jesus Christ. That's who does this. They didn't worry about the effort. They didn't worry about how silly they looked. They were going to do whatever they had to do to get this man to Jesus. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Clearly, Jesus is not upset. This term of endearment, he calls him son. This loving term, son. He's, he's, he's making clear. He's not angry with this man. He's not angry with his friends. He recognizes they had a need. They had a real need. And driven by the same compassion that lit, led him to cleanse the leper. He looked at this man with this very same compassion. And he says these words, son, your sins are forgiven. So I really want to slow down right here for a bit. 
Because this is one of those passages that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves running through them and really making a mess of our theology for a minute. When When we come to these passages that can sometimes be a little bit difficult to interpret, a little bit different for us to wrap our minds around, we do well to make sure, number one, that we allow the things that we do know from, from Scripture to dictate the way we understand the things we don't know. That we just hit pause and we say, okay, what, what do we know for sure about the forgiveness of sins? What has God revealed for sure? Not just once, not just twice, but what is the overarching message of Scripture? This thing right here, this solid thing right here. I'm not going to abandon this thing for the things that I don't know. I'm going to dig my heels and I'm going to set my compass, so to speak. And I'm going to make sure that however I interpret this passage of Scripture, I don't abandon the things that I do know to be true. I don't allow myself to get twisted up because I come to a passage that's that's tough at times. Understand that God doesn't contradict himself. And so surely what God has said about the forgiveness of sins all throughout Scripture must apply in the life of this guy right here. So we do that. What What can we understand about this story? Number one, we see... That Jesus saw their faith. Mark tells us Jesus saw their faith. How can you see faith? What does faith look like? Well, in in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, we get a picture of faith. This isn't a definition of faith, but we get a a picture of faith in Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So when we look at this man, we see assurance. Assurance of what they hope for. Conviction of what they hope for. They haven't seen these things. They haven't seen Jesus heal their friend. And yet, they've got a conviction in their heart based on other things that they've heard. Perhaps based on evidence that they've seen in other people's lives. They've got conviction. They've got assurance that Jesus can heal their friend. That conviction, that assurance, that confidence, that is faith. And tearing a hole in somebody else's roof, that's evidence of that faith. That's the way you can see this invisible thing called faith is when you see people taking these actions. When you see people acting in ways that otherwise wouldn't make sense, that's evidence. That's ways that you can see an invisible thing like faith. Clearly, these men were acting in faith. Clearly, they had a belief. They wouldn't have gone through all this if they didn't have a belief, a deep, abiding trust that Jesus could heal their friend. And so clearly, Jesus can see their faith. He sees evidence of their faith in the way that they're dropping their friend. They're digging up the roof, and they're dropping their friend down upon him. Now, many people, when he says... It says that Jesus saw their faith. Many people take this to mean, take this to mean that they only saw, he only saw the faith of these four men. That he saw the faith of the paralytic's friends. And certainly, that's at least what he meant. Because he, did, he uses the plural there. He saw, it says he saw their faith. So it can't have just been the para, meant the paralytic. He said it saw his faith. And then we would have been left to have to interpret, well, which of the him is he talking about? Which man is he talking about here? But he says he saw their faith. So certainly it must include at least the paralytic's. I mean, the paralytic's friends. And we, and, we, and we notice here at this point that the paralytic hasn't done anything. He hasn't said anything. The paralytic's friends are the ones that have done everything. They're the ones that have carried him by his bed. They're the ones that have climbed up. They're the ones that have dug the hole in the roof. This guy hasn't done anything other than perhaps letting his friends carry him to Jesus. But depending on the level of his paralysis, he may not have been able to resist that even if he wanted to. He may have just been along for the ride. So we don't see any evidence of this man's faith. And yet, I would argue with you this morning that we know more about the paralyzed man's faith than we do his friends. That we know more about this man's faith, that he had faith not just that Jesus could heal him, but he had saving faith. That this man that laid on the mat that never said a word and that never took a step at this point, that we know for certain that that man had saving faith. And we find that confidence in Jesus' words to him. The the, the assurance comes with what Jesus says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. See, this is where people's theology gets temporarily out of whack. 
Because people will take this and they'll say, you know, this is just a story. This is just a beautiful story about how my faith can save another. This is a beautiful story about how because of my faith, someone else will get saved and then they stop it right there. They don't explore how salvation actually happens. They don't explore how the forgiveness of sin actually happens. And so I ask you to hang with me this morning. Just because I preach this message in a way that maybe doesn't line up with that preacher that you love so much and the way that he's preaching. I'm not telling you he's a bad guy and I'm not telling you that he's trying to lead you astray. I'm saying just perhaps when we come to these moments of difficulty, when we come to these, these stories that are difficult to wrap our mind around, instead of going back to the basics, sometimes we just launch off into something new, not really even understanding the depths of what it is that we're saying, the, the bad theology that we're allowing ourselves to wander into. And so, what do we know for certain? If this man's sins were forgiven, and we know that because Jesus told him, Jesus isn't a liar, so when Jesus looked at this man, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. We know for certain this man's sins are forgiven. So we do well to ask ourselves, how are sins forgiven? What do we know about the forgiveness of sin? What do we know about the way that God relates to sin, specifically with regards to forgiveness? And so we can go back to the beginning. We can go back to the beginning of the giving of God's law, the way that God chose to reveal himself to Moses. And we read in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So routinely, since the fall of man, God has been revealing about himself in his nature that he is a God that is loving there's slow to anger, there's abounding and steadfast love, and that from that nature comes a desire to forgive. That our God is and had always been a forgiving God, a God that loves forgiveness. So much so that we read in Luke 15, 7 this, that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I'm not going to scream at you this morning, but this picture, you need to picture this picture in heaven as God is there, and God is not... God is not relishing the destruction of the wicked. He says that. He doesn't celebrate the destruction of the wicked. He does not enjoy the destruction of the wicked. He does not long for the destruction of the wicked. In fact, what we see is this picture of all of heaven rejoicing at one sinner that comes to repentance. It's the forgiveness of one sinner coming through repentance that all of heaven celebrates that. There is no celebration at destruction. There is celebration at the forgiveness that comes through repentance. We, have a, we serve a God who loves forgiveness, who longs for forgiveness, but that that forgiveness is not automatic. What did it say there? It said that heaven rejoices at the repentance of one sinner, that forgiveness demands repentance. That the God who forgives is the God who demands repentance. Turning away from our sin and turning towards him. And that all throughout Scripture, we see faith and repentance going hand in hand. You will never find true repentance without saving faith. You will never find saving faith without true repentance. Penitent faith. That is the picture that you see all throughout Scripture of those that are saved, of those that are forgiven. We always find these two things walking in lockstep. And that the way that you saw this faith, the way that you saw this penitence, the way that you saw this repentance on display during the Old Testament was through the sacrifices. As the law commanded, through the sacrifices. Because God has said in his word that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God made a way for the shedding of blood. That men, when they came to a point of recognizing their sin, of recognizing their need for God, of placing their faith in him as a God who forgives, they take an animal, an innocent substitute. They take that animal there, and the priests, on their behalf, make atonement. This is what Leviticus 4.2 says. That it is then that the priests shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. 
That this appointed sacrifice comes and gives its life. Its life is taken from it. Its blood is shed. It is there that forgiveness is, is, is offered. It is there that atonement is made. You need to see this in the very picture of someone coming to the temple with this animal. What are they saying? What they're saying there and coming is they're saying, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. They're confessing their sin. They're turning from their sin and saying, I can't fix this on my own, God. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to accept the blood of this sacrifice in my stead because I know that the wages of sin are death. So the death of this animal, may it stand in my stead. And you'll notice that if you read through, through the other accounts of this text, whether you read it in Mark or Matthew or Luke, what you'll find is there's, there, I believe it's in Matthew, that he says that Jesus also says to, the, says to the man, do not fear. You see, for a sinner to come into contact with the living God, it's a thing of great fear. This man would have been, fin, uh, would have been fearful to come before Jesus with his sin in this way. That in the Old Testament, it would have been a terrifying thing for someone to come into the presence of God without having this blood before them, this sacrifice to take their place, without being cleansed of their sin. They would have been struck dead. And so we see this call to do not fear. And yet we know that throughout the entire Old Testament, for more than a thousand years, we know that what God was doing with the blood of these animals, what God was doing with the sacrifice, the gallons and gallons of blood just rushing out the back of the temple. Think about the Day of Atonement. Think about the Passover. Just blood after blood after blood. That all this blood was just pointing forward to something more. There would come a time when every family didn't have to have their own lamb. When it wasn't year after year of sacrifices, that there would be one. One, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. And that throughout all those centuries, throughout all those generations, as those people had brought those lambs, those sacrifices, those substitutes in their stead, they were all just a shadow. They were all just a picture of who Jesus Christ was. That they were looking forward in faith that God would do what God said he would do in passing over their sin and forgiving their sin and offering them eternal life. That's the picture that we see here. That's the, that's the way that you saw their faith on display. And so as we come to this paralytic man, we know that for this paralytic man to be able to look in the eyes of Jesus Christ and have his sins forgiven, he must have followed the words of Peter in Acts 3.18. We see this, repent then and turn to God so that he will forgive your sins. So that when Jesus looks to this man, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. This man clearly had saving faith. He clearly had penitent faith. He clearly had repentance. There was simply no other way for this to happen. It's only through that kind of faith, that kind of penitent faith, that kind of repentant faith that we can reach out our hands and receive this free gift of forgiveness. That's the way. It's through that faith. That's the only way that this man could have received this gift. And so we know, we, have, we know with confidence that he has this. But the guy didn't say anything because Jesus knows the hearts of men. Because the Son of God can look into the hearts of men and he can see. So as he looks and he sees these men lowering their friend, he sees without a shadow of doubt, these men have faith that I can heal. But he saw more. He saw the heart of this man that was being lowered down. And what he saw when he looked there was sin. He looked into this man's heart and he saw sin and he saw filth. And he saw separation. But he also saw repentance. And he saw faith. And he saw trust that God could do more than just heal his body. That God could, in fact, cleanse his sins. He sees that. He sees that saving grace, I mean, that saving faith, excuse me, that reaches out and that by grace is saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Understanding that this forgiveness that Jesus offered to this man, it was completely free to this man. He didn't charge a dime, and yet it was going to cost Jesus everything. And leaving heaven and coming to earth and being spit upon and detested and abandoned and killed... That was the cost of this man's forgiveness, and yet he offered it to him freely. 
So what then about the friends? What do we do with the friends then? Because he says that he saw their faith. What do we know about the friends' faith? Not a lot. Not as much as the paralyzed man. We know at least, though, that they had faith that Jesus could heal their friend, and they went to great lengths to make that happen. They went great lengths to get their friend before the Jesus who could heal. Did they have saving faith as well? We don't know. We're not told that. Perhaps. We hope. We can pray. But what about us? Because here's where, the, here's where the story gets real personal for us. Because there's many of us there at home, here within this room, we've got people that we desperately love that we know do not have faith. We've got people in our lives that we desperately want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if it was easy as something like grabbing the corners of a blanket and dragging them to Jesus, whether they wanted to go or not, don't you know we would have done it? If all it took was for us to know the path to Jesus, the way to Jesus, where these people could find Jesus, and we just get them and we drag them there, kicking and screaming. That's all it took to find salvation. Don't you know that we would do it? I don't know how many times people have come to me and they've said things like, I love my husband so much. My wife, my children, my best friend, so much. And I would give anything to see them come to Christ. That your heart's cry is like that of Peter. Listen to Peter's words in Romans 9, 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying here, I wish that I could be cut off. I could wish that I would be cut off from Christ so that the Jews could come to faith. He's heartbroken by the fact that his kinsmen are going to be lost. Many of his kinsmen are going to be lost. And many of you, you would say that very same thing. Look, if there were a trade to be made, if I could be damned so that those that I love could be saved, don't you know that I would sign up for that today? Now, I would argue with you that you wouldn't say that if you knew what it really meant to be damned. If we really understood the depths of hell, the eternity of hell, the fires of hell. But I do sense that longing in many of our hearts. So what do we do with that then? What is the answer? What do we do? If it's not some physical act we can do, if it's not just convincing them, if it's not arguing with them, if it's not carrying them by their blankets and leading them before Jesus Christ, what then? What role does our faith play in the salvation of the people that we love? The answer is we pray. We make intercession and we pray. We talked sometime back about intercessory prayer. It's nothing more than going before the God who has endless supply. Going before our Heavenly Father who has everything. In the name of Jesus Christ, we say, God, would you meet this need in this person's life that I love so much? They might not even know they have that need. They might even want to have this need met. And yet, Father, I'm asking you, in your grace and in your mercy, I'm asking you to come into this person's life and do the thing that only you can do. Father God, would you please, I beg you, God, would you please save this man? Wait a minute. I thought your faith couldn't save anybody. Correct. But where did your faith come from in the first place? You didn't manufacture your own faith. You didn't muster your own faith. You didn't come to faith on your own. It was the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Regeneration and awaking you. You're going back to the source. You're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And then when they don't want to go get that food, you go to God and you say, God, would you do this? Would you change them? Would you, tra would, you, would you bring them to life? Would you bring them to awareness of their sin? Would you cause them to repent? Would you cause them to cry out in faith? You're going and you're asking God to give the same gift he gave to you to give it to somebody else that you love so dearly. Because you can't do it. You can't give them your faith. You can't cause them to manufacture their own faith. So you're asking God, God, would you do this thing that only you can do? And you trust that when you pray in accordance with God's will, that he uses those prayers, that he hears those prayers and he heeds those prayers. 
So you trust the God who does good. You trust the God who is good. You trust the God who, who welcomes and responds to the prayers of the faithful. You trust him to do good. At the same time, knowing that God also has given man free will. And that in that free will, he is going to allow many, if not most, to reject him until their very last day. He's going to allow people to, to make this decision for themselves of whether they turned in faith or whether they do not. But we trust that he's going to save some, just like Jesus continuing to preach to the crowd, knowing that there are going to be some that are going to be saved. And those that are going to be saved, they're going to be saved because God does the same work in their life that he does in your work. So that's what you do on your knees. Unceasingly, you pray and you pray and you pray, trusting that he's going to save some. And then you live lives of faith in their presence. You live out a faithful life that they can see. Because we don't know how God uses the prayers of the saints and the lives of faith of the saints to call other people to him. We don't know. We don't know how he's using you. We don't know the way that he's going to call somebody to himself. And so you live lives of faith right before their eyes. What do I say whenever we bring a baby down here for dedication? You pay attention to those words? As we bring a child down here with their parents, what do I ask those parents? Will you live out the gospel before this child's eyes so that by the grace of God and by the power of his spirit, they may come to a point where they recognize their sin, their need of a savior, and cry out in faith? That God's going to use that life of holiness in the life of those parents. That may well be the thing that he uses to call them. And then I look to the church, and what do I say to them? The very same thing. You commit to live lives of holiness, trusting that this child is watching. You commit to worship Jesus Christ with all your life, with everything you have, to literally lay down your life, that this child may see what saving faith looks like. That God may use your life of worship and holiness and service and self-sacrifice to call this child to life. Would you do that? That's the role that you have to play in this. That you stay on your knees before God and that you stand up from your knees and you live lives that look like Jesus Christ. That's the way that he uses you to save people. And God's going to save who he's going to save. But we're all going to stand before God someday and we're going to answer for what we've done with this life that he's given us. I look at myself, a man with three little girls. And listen, all three of my little girls have come to a point of repentance and faith. My prayer at this moment is that they endure. It says only those that endure to the end will be saved. So my job's not done. I continue to fall on my face before God and say, God, please, I plead with you, I beg with you, cause them to persevere. And then I stand up and I do my best to live a life of holiness. In the power of the Spirit and by the authority of His Word, I do my best to live a life of holiness and righteousness and a life that looks like Jesus Christ and model that out before them. Do I have the power to save them? Nope. Do I have the power to damn them? Nope. But what I do have is the ability to be, to be used of God. And we don't know the way that that's going to play out. And so that's my call to you this morning. Those of you here in this room and those of you there at home, there's not a one of you that doesn't know somebody, doesn't love somebody, doesn't cherish somebody, that you have great fear for what eternity is going to look like for them. That's the picture of what you're to do. Fall on your knees and ask God. He's the only one that can save them, so ask him. God, help me for the times that I didn't. I went in prayer and I asked God for a new Xbox or a new car or some more money or for health or for wealth or for something else and I didn't lift up the names of those that I claim to love that are headed to hell. And God, help me for the times that I looked just like the rest of the world so that people that looked to me, that I was the closest thing to Jesus they were going to get, they looked to me and they saw nothing different from the rest of the world. No indication of what saving faith was supposed to look like. No indication of what a life of faith looked like. So I've spent way more time on that, but it really is that kind of crucial. 
that this man was saved, that this man was forgiven of, her sin, of his sins, he surely had this kind of faith, this repentant faith. He and his friends, they may not have understood why, why they were coming to Jesus. They may well have just been there for physical healing, and yet the God who sees into the hearts of men, he saw into the heart of this man, and he was saved. He forgave this man's sins. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Absolutely right. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Not only because God alone has the power, not only because God alone has the authority, because all sins are against God. You know, we often talk, turn to the Psalms of David to see a picture of what true repentance is meant to look like. And I do that again. Psalm 51.4, where David cries out this, against you, this is talking to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. All sin at its root is an offense against God. And for an ordinary man to claim the ability, the authority, the right to forgive sins clearly would have been blasphemy. And blasphemy carries with it the penalty of death. So that these religious leaders that are there, these scribes and these Pharisees, they're there. This is going to be the first of many confrontations they're going to have with Jesus. This is the charge that's going to live, is going to, uh, going to lead to the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, this charge. And so these men, they were there. And they were listening. And unlike the others, when they hear this charge, to, 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 this call to repent and believe and be saved, it gives them no hope. It just makes them furious. Because you see, friends, there is nothing more infuriating to the professional religious people, to the self-righteous people, than to call them to repent. There's nothing that will infuriate them worse than for you to look them in the eye and say, repent, believe, be saved. These people saw no need of that. And so they saw it as death. It wasn't that they didn't have the knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't know the law. It wasn't that they weren't aware of the sacrifices. It wasn't that they hadn't heard the prophetic uh, prophecies. It was their hearts. Their hearts were broken. Look at, the, look at the paralytic man. He knew he was a sinner. He was under no illusion of being self-righteous. He was under no illusion that things were okay in and of himself. In a time when sin and paralysis, when sin and sickness were viewed as going together, this man knew he was a sinner. He knew he was filthy. He knew that he was alone and without God in this world. He knew that he had need of something more than physical healing. He, you, you can almost hear the, the cry of the tax collector there in the temple. As he, he's beating his chest and he's saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This man knew that he was a sinner and he knew that he was in need of mercy. So you'll notice that when Jesus tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. He may not have come there for that. He may have come there just for physical healing. But Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. He looks into this man's heart and he sees more than a broken body. He sees a heart that needs to be cleansed. And so he touches him right where he hurts. Son, your sins are forgiven. Say those words to somebody today. Go to somebody today and say, you need forgiveness of sins. Repent. What's the response? Who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? Who are you to tell me that I've sinned? You don't tell me that. That's the heart of these Pharisees. That's the heart of these scribes. But this man didn't reject those words. He loved them. He cherished them. To go and call somebody today to repentance is to be called a, a judgmental butthead. Nobody wants, to do with, wants anything to do with a guy that talks about sin, much less looks at someone else and calls him to repentance. And yet, this man, he knew that he was a sinner. He recognized that he was lowly. He was meek. And so he embraced that. He embraced that. That's what the heart of repentance looks like. It says, look, if this man can really forgive my sins, if God is really for, re ready to forgive my sins, then who am I to hide them? Why would I hold them behind my back? You see, don't you see the picture of unfaithfulness that's shown in a refusal to bring your sins out into the light? 
A refusal to confess your sins? That shows at its root that you don't trust God to forgive your sins. Or perhaps you don't think you're a sinner. And that's not what we saw in this man. He embraced that. You can, you can hear him crying out, cleanse me, forgive me. Not these other guys. In their own minds, they were clean. They were righteous. They weren't seeking forgiveness, and so they wouldn't find any. They rejected it and sought his death because of the message that he preached. And just as Jesus could see the sin and the repentance and the faith and the hearts of the paralytic, he could see the hearts of the scribes. Verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up your bed and walk? So he could have just ignored these guys. He could have just forgiven the faithful paralytic and then just ignored these jerks in the corner that were thinking badly of them, those people that were just there trying to play gotcha. But he didn't. He hit them right between the eyes. He didn't deny that it's only God's prerogative. It's only God's authority. It's only God's right to forgive sins. He just proved that he was God. Yet again, he proved that he was God. So he asked this question, which is easier? Is it easier to tell this man that his sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to tell a man to use legs that he hadn't used for years and get up? Well, what a strange question. Neither. I can't do either one of those things. I can't forgive your sins, and I can't cause you to be able to walk after years of not being able to walk. What he's saying here, though, is, look, I can tell somebody their sins are forgiven, and there's no outward evidence of that. I can go around telling people their sins are forgiven, and nobody would ever know whether I had really done it or not. And yet if I tell this man to rise and walk, and he still lays there, you'll know that I'm a blasphemer. You'll know that I'm a liar. And because I know that you need to see these evidences for their sake and for ours today, he tells the man, rise and walk. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So we don't have time because I've gone so far. I don't, we don't have time to really unpack what it, the, the meaning behind this term or this phrase, Son of Man. In, in the Old Testament, you would see Son of Man used more often than not just to mean Son of a man, like just a dude, right? A man is just a man. And so for many in the crowd, when Jesus would use the phrase Son of Man, they would have just thought, yeah, he's, he's confessing his... His, his humanity. He's a man, yes. For others, they would have thought about texts like Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is used as a, as a, as a messianic prophecy, as a, as a messianic term. And so there were some, some of the more learned people, they would have heard this as a promise of the Messiah, but it was only those within Jesus' tiny group that would have really understood the way he was just flipping this thing completely upside down. It was more than just a Messiah that was going to come and lead a political revolt. It was more than just a Messiah that was going to come and set them free from the Romans. That it was the Son of God coming to forgive sins come to redeem humanity, come to defeat the devil. It was, a, it was a test for people. As he would call this out, he was pushing them up against, who do you say I am? He asked the same question of us today. Who do you say I am? He's either the son of God or he's the son of the devil. To come and claim that he has the authority to forgive sins, he can't be a good teacher and he can't just be a good loving dude. He's got to either be the son of God or he's got to be a, a man to be outright rejected, despised for the lies that he tried to persecute. To perpetrate. And so to prove that he is in fact the son of God, he tells the man, rise, take up your bed and go home. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So the people couldn't see the forgiveness of sin, but they could see him heal this man. And because of this man's faith, he was forgiven of his sins and that Jesus had also then healed his legs. Now, why did he do it in this order? Because to heal this man's legs and allow him to walk out of that place would have been to let, to, without, without forgiving him of his sins, he may well have just freed this man to walk off into an eternity in hell. That legs that work, legs that run, they're of no use if you're charging in the wrong direction. 
He wanted to deal with what was most important in this man's life, and that was forgiveness of sin. That was to be reconciled with God, and then I'll deal with the other, if I'll deal with the other. He could have just healed this man's legs. You could have seen this, right? He could have just healed his legs. There was plenty of people that were healed that had no faith whatsoever. You look at it, he healed everybody in Capernaum. Did all of those people have saving faith? I promise you not. You look at it, we would raise people from the dead. Were those people expressing saving faith at that moment? Absolutely not. Jesus healed plenty of people without saving faith. It was only those that had repentant faith that he would look at and would say, you are healed completely, eternally. Your legs may get... This dude, I'd love to know the rest of this guy's story. Wouldn't it be ironic? Jesus looks at this man and forgives his sin. He heals him. He walks outside and gets kicked by a horse and he's paralyzed again. Eventually this dude's legs stopped working. Eventually this dude died. What he needed more than anything else was to be forgiven of his sins. So he dealt with the first thing first. The reason he healed him again was to prove that he had actually done the first. Because that's what's going to carry off into eternity. So these men, they come to him and they, very likely, all they were looking for was healing. And, and many of you, I'm sure that there's many people watching us online today, you're just here because of some temporal, earthly, immediate need. You're scared because of the virus. You're scared because you lost your job. You're scared because your hours have been cut. You're lonely, perhaps, because you've been separated from your friends. You've got some other illness in your body that's driven you to come to Jesus, and all you're looking for in this moment is healing. All you're looking for in this moment is just a, just a temporary fix, just a relief from your suffering. And I say to you this morning, what if God is using that pain to drive you here so that you could receive something so much greater? What if he's doing is he's using that pain to drive you to a place where you would receive the message of Jesus Christ and be forgiven because your body is going to break again. Your relationships are going to break again. Your heart is going to break again. The question is, what does eternity look like for you? And he offers that to you. He offers that to you today. That you can have forgiveness of sins. That he may well be calling you to life in this way. That you can truly repent today and know without a shadow of a doubt that you will be saved for all eternity, no matter what happens to your body. Because here's the thing. Again, God healed plenty of people that never came to saving faith. So if all you're looking for is for your body to be healed, all you're looking for is more money in your account, all you're looking for is for your relationships to be restored, you don't need saving faith for that. God may heal you anyway. Now your life's not going to be what it should be. Eternity's going to look awful. But you may just wait. God may just heal your body. The flip side of that is, you may come to a point of repentance. You can't, may come to a point of saving faith. You may cry out to Jesus. You may believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And you may be saved, and none of that other stuff may get fixed. You may find your relationships just as broken as before you started. Your bank account just as empty as before you started. Your body just as broken as before it started. So the question is, what do you really want from Jesus? Because if, you, if what you want from Jesus is just temporary relief from suffering, you will miss out on eternity. If what you want is eternity with him, if what you want is forgiveness of sins, if what you want is more of Jesus, you will gain him and maybe all the rest too. But I make no false promises. Jesus makes no false promises. His word makes no false promise. So that's the thing you've got to wrestle with today. What do you want from Jesus? Why are you seeking this Jesus? And is he enough? Because that's what he's promised you. He's promised you himself. An eternity with him. And if eternity with him isn't enough for you, turn back now. Because you're going to be real stinking disappointed. But if you cherish him as your ultimate delight, if you want him more than you want anything else, more than legs at work, more than money in the bank, more than even a fixed marriage, what you want is more of Jesus, more than you want anything else, 
buddy, you better hold on because things are about to get real stinking good no matter what the world around you looks like. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you see the hearts of men. Father, you said in your word that our hearts are deceptive. We don't even understand our own hearts, and I certainly confess that to be true. I do not understand my own heart. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I, I'm just a, just a big old tangled mess, but Father, you see into my heart. And if, Father, what, what you see there is repentance, what you see there is faith, it's because you've put it there. All I manufacture is sin. All I manufacture is selfishness and pride and unforgiveness. But, Father God, if there is faith there, if there is repentance there, there is a gift from you, and I praise you for that gift. I praise you for the assurance that, Father, because you have called me to faith, because you have called me to repentance, that you will cause me to persevere. That the end of this life is going to be me coming into glory with your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for so many others that you have done that same saving work in their life. Father, I pray for those that don't yet know you. Father, we are surrounded by lostness. So I pray, Father, you would do the same work in their lives. Pray, Father, as we sing these songs to you now, that they would be pleasing to your ear, that you would be glorified. Your son's precious name we pray. Amen.